Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, I'm Scott Chesworth, and welcome to the Ancient World. Episode 22, The Fifth Generation. A few episodes back, I talked about the three pillars of archaic Greek resurgence. In short, the Olympics, literacy, and aggressive colonization. What I wanted to get more into this week was what did mainland Greece look like in the 8th and 7th centuries BC? Or put another way, what was the nature of the archaic Greek world that emerged from the Dark Ages? What elements did it retain from the Bronze Age? And what new features did it possess that would point the way toward coming Greek dominance of the classical world? As discussed previously, the fall of Mycenae and other major Greek power centers around 1200 BC led to a major downsizing of Greek population, wealth, and social structures, a severing of ancient eastern Mediterranean trade links, and a large exodus of mainland Greeks to the Ionian coast of Anatolia. As you might expect from a dark age, records and notable archaeological finds from the next several centuries are rare, and aside from the generalities above, we know very little about Greek society or culture during this period. It isn't until the 8th century BC that things begin picking up again. One of the first recognizable features of 8th century Greece is the widespread construction of temples, monumental buildings intended to house particular Greek gods. The construction of these buildings, which replaced earlier altars or shrines, corresponds with a large increase in both the number and value of offerings made, including, in some prominent temples, a significant contribution from outside the local area. It's not clear exactly why this was going on, but as in the case of Olympia, it may have been due to the institution of the various Panhellenic Games, which often brought outsiders great distances to compete. The increase in temple offerings also corresponds with a decrease in the amount of valuables left in tombs. Like the Panhellenic Games themselves, which differed from earlier Greek funeral games in that you could, well, train and prepare for them, such temple offerings were a means for Greek elites to increase their visibility to the larger Greek world. Greek temples often contained cult statues of the gods they housed, many familiar from the Mycenaean Greek pantheon. 
The presence of cult statues created a space for more direct communication with the god, and also made the god a kind of patron and protector of the community. The basic relationship harkened back to Mycenaean Greek tradition, where statues of gods had played similar roles in the tales of the Trojan War. But the combination of temples and cult statues was, in itself, a new archaic Greek development. The growth of Greek temples and the communal ceremonies that grew up around them, including public feasts, implies the existence of well-organized communities with significant resources at their disposal. We need to be a little careful. The 8th century BC is too early to talk about the rise of the Greek polis, where we can define a particular set of features and social arrangements that line up well with the classical understanding of the term. Instead, at this early stage, we can really only say that something was happening across the 8th century Greek world that made it a significantly different place from the Dark Age world it was slowly emerging from. Another interesting development was the nature of the offerings left in temples. Typical 8th century BC dedications included large bronze tripods, jewelry, clothing, armor, weapons, exotic foreign items, and small bronze animal figurines. But in the early 7th century BC, statues of men became the preferred gift to the gods, and even other votive offerings, such as cauldrons, were increasingly adorned with human figures. The earliest such objects clearly borrowed from contemporary Egyptian or Near Eastern styles. But by the end of the 7th century BC, a uniquely Greek artistic creation, the Kuroi, had become the temple offering of choice. Kuroi, essentially freestanding, life-size stone figures, also bear some similarity to Egyptian statues, particularly with their one-foot-forward and hands-by-the-side stance. But they also differ in a few critical aspects. For one, they're naked, which is very non-Egyptian. They also have a unique smile, which is very different from that of Egyptian pharaohs. And Kuroi also have, well, let's be honest, helmet hair. Also, while Egyptian statues represent powerful individuals, Kuroi are intended to represent humans in abstract. Their placement in temples, in ever-increasing numbers and sizes, seem designed to prompt thoughts on the relationship of man to the gods. By the mid-7th century BC, Greek temples were being constructed using what was called the Doric Order of Design, with large dressed stones and columns roughly six diameters high, crowned with a square stone abacus and carrying smooth stone beams with a further vertical face above. While some parallels to Egyptian architecture are present, it's doubtful that the Doric design had Egyptian origins. Greek engagement with Egypt, initially via Carian and Ionian mercenaries, only became significant after the mid-7th century BC, during the reign of the pharaoh Samtik I. Such a date would allow extremely tight timing for the transmittal and widespread dissemination of Egyptian architectural techniques throughout the Greek mainland. Doric temples also had elements not replicated in Egyptian architecture, including the use of terracotta roof tiles, which can only be used on a shallow slope 
and give Greek temples their distinctive profile. The earliest known Doric temple was that of Apollo at Corinth, but the style quickly caught on and similar temples were soon constructed to Artemis at Sparta, to Hera at both Argos and Olympia, and to Athena at Smyrna in Ionian Greece. The construction of such large temples, populated by ever-growing numbers of Kuroi, testifies to the increasing wealth and organization of archaic Greek communities. At least some understanding of Greek social relations during the Archaic period can be decoded through the works of two of its most famous authors, Homer and Hesiod. Due to the restoration of Greek literacy, Homer's Iliad and Odyssey, and Hesiod's Theogony and Works and Days, were preserved in more or less their early 7th century BC forms. The importance of this is that, in order to connect with their intended audience, it's very likely that all these works dealt with subject matter and reflected points of view with which their early listeners and readers could identify. Hesiod's Theogony is a telling of the Greek creation myth. It reflects a world in which the relationship between gods and men is based on rational motives as opposed to being chaotic and arbitrary, and with justice as the ultimate aim. Zeus, king of the gods, is seen as the sponsor of good, and his daughters, the muses, are tasked with guiding human rulers to act with wisdom and justice. In its division of responsibilities between gods, the struggles between different generations of gods, and the ability of a wise man to trick the gods, the theogony has a great deal in common with Mesopotamian creation myths, such as the Enuma Elish suggesting that Hesiod and his contemporaries may have gained some familiarity with Near Eastern cosmology. Hesiod's works and days deals with more earthly matters, including labor, farming, and general good advice, making the poet come off kind of like an archaic Ben Franklin. From this poem, we learn that the archaic Greeks still had rulers, possibly kings, One key difference is that the rulers no longer appear defined by heredity, but instead solely by their inherited or accumulated wealth. Hesiod's overarching concern seems not to be who rules, but whether they rule justly. While portraying late Bronze Age events, Homer's Iliad and Odyssey were also likely tailored to some degree to reflect matters of contemporary interest or concern to the archaic Greeks. A major aspect of both works is the relative powerlessness of kings, who were unable to exert their authority over proud, rebellious warriors, or sometimes even over their own armies. The conflict between Achilles and Agamemnon explores questions of royal authority and the virtue of resisting such authority when it's perceived as unjust. The heavy reliance of speeches in Homer's works unusual for Greek poetry, but typical of Near Eastern works such as the Epic of Gilgamesh, gives each side full expression and permits negotiation between conflicting sets of values. The ability to give sound advice and give it persuasively is considered a prerequisite of a good leader in Homer's world, as valuable as his skill with a sword or spear. 
In short, as historian Robin Osborne states, all these poems belong to a world where political authority is being debated and explored, where power is not simply inherited, where social status correlates closely with access to power but does not fully define it. Public speaking and the arguing out of a case in a public forum are normal in this world, and rhetorical skills are both admired and highly developed. In addition to epic poetry, archaic Greek art also progressed from the geometric style common throughout the 8th century BC to a more representational approach. The subject matter of the earliest such art, typically found on painted vases and other storage vessels, includes mythology, warfare, and the hunting of wild beasts. Clearly, Greek artists were beginning to realize that the culture of the day demanded representational expression. For inspiration, the Greeks initially turned to the style and imagery of the Near East, which were then molded into something befitting the Greek experience. The black figure technique that emerged, comprised of black forms accented with red and white details, was initially associated with the Greek city of Corinth. However, it quickly spread to such a degree as to become the definitive artistic style of the archaic Greek world. Based on its innovations in both art and Doric temple construction, as well as the popular Corinthian-style helmet favored by Greek soldiers of the era, Corinth was clearly a city on the cutting edge of archaic Greek development. In the early archaic age, this role had been filled by the city of Lefkondi on the Greek island of Euboea. As discussed several episodes back, Lefkondi was the locus where domestic Greek trade networks were first reforged, the Greek alphabet was first developed and used, and the first popular Greek pottery style was crafted for export to the Near East. It was also from Lefkondi that Greeks had launched their first forays into foreign colonization, with the establishment of Pithecusa in Italy and Almina in coastal Syria. So, whatever happened to Lefkondi? Well, apparently, toward the end of the 8th century BC, the region had fallen victim to war. And not just any war, but the only war in Greece between the quasi-mythical Trojan War and the coming Persian Wars that involved alliances of cities as opposed to individual cities in conflict. This was the little-known Lelantine War, fought between Lefkandi's Euboean neighbors of Eritrea and Colchis, over domination of the fertile Lelantine Plain. While both cities possessed large fleets, the war was mostly fought on land. In this transitional age between Homeric and hoplite warfare, rival armies still used infantry, cavalry, and chariots, but warriors had adopted the sword, not the spear, as their weapon of choice. From the two initial Euboean combatants, the Lelantine War grew through a series of personal alliances between rulers to eventually involve Miletus, Samos, Thessaly, Aegina, Corinth, Megara, Chios, and possibly dozens of other Greek cities, many of whom used the conflict to resolve their own territorial disputes. By the time the war ended, several decades later, Lefkandi had been destroyed and the initial combatants exhausted, to the point where the island of Euboea soon became a Greek backwater. It was left to other cities, including Miletus and Corinth, to shoulder the burden of further archaic Greek development. 
Speaking of Corinth, let's talk a bit about the history of this major Greek city. Likely settled by invading Dorians around 900 BC, little is known of Corinth before the mid-8th century. At this time, the last king, Telestes, was overthrown by members of an aristocratic clan named the Bacchiadae. Through their dominance of the new institutions of Pritinus, or chief magistrate, and Polymarchus, or war leader, the Bacchiadae governed Corinth over most of the next century. Their rule was marked by both large-scale public construction and the establishment of colonies at Corcyra and Syracuse, and Corinth soon became the wealthiest Greek city of the era. In the mid-7th century BC, Corinth fell victim to a new Greek phenomenon that would soon come to define the Archaic Era, the Tyrant. To set the stage a bit, in recent years, Corinth had been led into a series of unpopular wars against both Argos and Corcyra, and the people had become disenchanted with the ruling Bacchiadae clan. The war leader of Corinth at the time was Sipsilus, a member of this very same clan. Sipsilus used his influence with the army to usurp sole power, then had the remainder of the Bacchiadae family expelled from Corinth. Once his rule was secure, Sipsilus continued to grow the wealth and power of Corinth, mainly through increased trade with the Greek colonies of Italy and Sicily. His reign lasted 30 years, a testimony to his general popularity. Upon his death, he was succeeded, as tyrant of Corinth, by his son Periander, who would later become famous for building a ramp across the Isthmus of Corinth so that ships could be dragged across as opposed to having to circuit the Peloponnese. The story of Sipsilus is fairly representative of the tyrant phenomenon that swept across Greece in the mid-7th century BC. Tyrants were often members of local elites, typically used times of public discontent to seize the reins of power, and were often able to pass down those reins at least one generation. There was also some variation. Tyrants could be either political insiders, like Sipsilus, or the newly wealthy. And in justifying their seizure of power, they variously claimed to be fulfilling the will of the people, saving the city from weak or wrong-headed leaders, or putting an end to destructive conflict between rival elites. In the turbulent world of archaic Greek politics, such claims were often not much of a stretch. While backgrounds, aims, and means might differ, the general result was the subordination of local Greek aristocracies to the power of a single man. The term tyrant initially meant little more than this fact, and it didn't assume its more negative connotation until later. In order to bolster their credibility, tyrants often did their best to uphold existing laws, customs, and religious practices. In order to maintain their popularity, they also often engaged in public works projects designed to increase the prestige of their home cities. But despite all these factors, tyrants were almost universally vilified in retrospect. The main reason, of course, was that the institution of tyranny served to shame both rival elites, forced to cede power to one of their own, as well as the common people, forced to phase up to the grim reality of their own political impotence. In addition to the realm of politics, the 8th and 7th centuries BC also saw developments in Greek warfare. By far the most important military innovation of the 7th century was the hopla, or hoplite shield. 
a round shield supported by a strap handle through which the left forearm is inserted. The hopla's main advantage was when ranks were packed sufficiently tightly, in a configuration known as a phalanx, the lock shields provided each warrior with a high degree of protection against enemy attack. The invention of the hoplite shield both diminished the need for each soldier to purchase his own expensive suit of heavy armor, and reinforced a cohesive approach, where each warrior was forced to rely on his companions for survival and victory. Fighting in massed ranks was, in itself, nothing new. Its mention in the Trojan War cycle meant that it had likely been a standard Greek tactic for at least several centuries. Indeed, I previously noted that one of the earliest known Sumerian records, the Stele of the Vultures, appears to show the use of such a formation as early as 2500 BC. But the particular design and relative inexpense of the hoplite shield permitted a larger number of Greeks to serve in the armed forces of their cities. Also, since it didn't require custom fitting, like armor, the shield could be passed down from generation to generation. Behind the shield, various forms of helmets and armor would continue to be experimented with over the succeeding centuries. Hoplite warfare, first developed by the Archaic Greeks, would soon become the dominant mode of large-scale battle throughout the Mediterranean, and would remain so down through later Hellenistic and early Roman times. While we're on the subject of weapons, armor, and the importance of the Greek phalanx, I can't think of a better segue into a discussion of another major Greek city, Sparta. While Sparta had a prominent role in Homer's Iliad, as the site of Helen's abduction, the archaic Greek city had little connection to its late Bronze Age predecessor. After being settled by Dorians in the 10th century BC, the early archaic version of the city had fallen under the control of a particularly brutal and rapacious ruling elite, one who left the masses impoverished and virtually enslaved. Lawlessness and civil strife were the norm, and the city clearly cried out for a better form of governance. Unfortunately, the Spartans had few contemporary examples to emulate, since much of mainland Greece was also in the throes of similar class-based conflict. On the other hand, the absence of any centralized rule by powerful kings and large empires gave Sparta something even more valuable, the freedom to experiment. Starting around 725 BC, the Spartans carried out a series of radical political and social reforms designed to overcome the many perceived ills of their society. The Spartans attributed their new constitution to a semi-mythical lawgiver named Lycurgus, who had derived his revolutionary approach from the Greek oracle at Delphi. In reality, the various elements of Spartan government probably developed slowly over the next century, by which time they were firmly established. Under their new system, Sparta was ruled by two hereditary kings, each supposedly a descendant of the Greek demigod Heracles, who were equal in authority with each having the power to veto his colleague. In this respect, the Spartan executive was similar to the later Roman consul system. In matters of religion, the kings were chief priests of the state and also maintained communication with the Panhellenic Sanctuary at Delphi. In matters of war, their authority was supreme. 
However, they shared civil authority with three other players in the Spartan power structure. The five ephors, chief magistrates, roughly equivalent to Arthenian archons, a council of elders, and a people's assembly. Around 720 BC, the Spartans conquered the neighboring territory of Messenia and converted the entire population into the slaves known as helots. This unique arrangement provided the entire Spartan population with the means of living an aristocratic lifestyle, while the equal allotment of slaves and conquered land to each Spartan citizen ensured the equality value within their society. Continuing domination of the helots, who outnumbered them seven to one, also helped to keep the Spartans in a perpetual state of warfare, which they considered good practice. Sparta was, above all, a militarist state, and emphasis on military fitness began virtually at birth. Newborns perceived as puny and deformed were hurled into a chasm. When male Spartans began military training at age seven, they would enter the agoge system, designed to encourage discipline, physical toughness, and reverence for the Spartan state. Boys lived in communal messes and were deliberately underfed to encourage them to master the skill of stealing food. Besides physical and weapons training, boys studied reading, writing, music, and dancing. Speaking laconically, with brevity and wit, was also strongly encouraged. At the age of 12, the agoge system obliged Spartan boys to take an older male mentor, usually an unmarried young man. The older man was expected to function as a kind of substitute father and role model to his junior partner. It's also relatively certain that they had sexual relations. At the age of 18, Spartan boys became reserve members of the Spartan army. Upon leaving the Agoge, some boys were sent into the countryside with only a knife and forced to survive on their skills and cunning. Another unique aspect of Spartan society was that Spartan women also underwent a fairly extensive formal educational cycle, making it the only contemporary Greek polis to educate its female population. Spartan women enjoyed status, power, and respect unknown to the rest of the archaic world. They controlled their own property, as well as that of male relatives who were away with the army. It's estimated that women were sole owners of at least 35% of all land and property in Sparta. Laws regarding divorce were the same for both men and women. Spartan women rarely married before their 20s, and unlike Athenian women, who wore heavy, concealing clothes and were rarely seen in public, Spartan women wore short dresses and went pretty much wherever they pleased. Men were encouraged to marry at the age of 20, but couldn't live with their families until they left active military service at age 30. They called themselves homoioi, or equals, pointing to their common lifestyle and the discipline of the phalanx, which demanded that no soldier be superior to his comrades. Insofar as hoplite warfare could be perfected, the Spartans did so. This development did not happen overnight, and the Spartans of the 7th century BC were far from unbeatable. Evidence from the period points to Spartan invasions of Triphylia, to the north of Messenia, Tegea, and Argos, all of which were handily repulsed. But, as they say, practice makes perfect. Practice and an absolute commitment to always fight to the death and never surrender. 
Thucydides reports that when a Spartan man went off to war, his wife would present him with his shield and say, with this or upon it, meaning, essentially, come back either victorious or dead. If a Spartan hoplite ever returned home without his shield, it would be assumed that he'd thrown it at the enemy in an attempt to flee, an act punishable by death or banishment. Like the other great cities of Greece, the Spartans seldom undertook important matters, including warfare, without consulting the oracle at Delphi. In Greek mythology, Delphi was where the god Apollo had slain the dragon Python, as well as being the location of the Umphalos, or navel of the earth, essentially the center of the world. In the early 8th century BC, the sanctuary of Apollo at Delphi began hosting the Pythian Games, Panhellenic Games similar to the Olympics, which were also held every four years, and also featured musical competitions alongside the athletic events. The Temple of Apollo at Delphi was inscribed with three phrases, the most famous being the admonition to know thyself. A spring flowed toward the temple, but disappeared beneath, creating a crevasse that emitted vapors. It was from these vapors that the priestesses of the oracle at Delphi, by tradition, an older woman, native to the region, who had led a blameless life, supposedly gained her famous powers of prophecy, falling into a trance and channeling the words of the god Apollo in the form of ecstatic speech. This speech was then translated by other priests of the temple into enigmatic prophecies. Despite its relatively remote and inaccessible location, by the late 8th century BC, Delphi had already become the recipient of large numbers of votive objects from across the Greek mainland. The implication is that it was during this period that the oracle began to be more widely consulted on matters of Greek politics, particularly matters where other local oracles might not be considered impartial. One interpretation of Delphi's importance to the archaic Greeks was in its function as validator of community decisions, particularly those involving the division or attenuation of civic powers, which might expect to meet resistance from entrenched elites. Implementing a new series of laws, taking actions that might result in conflict with neighbors, or sending troublesome groups into exile were all activities that might benefit strongly from having the stamp of approval from remote, impartial Delphi. The archaic Greek world of the 7th century BC was a place where more and more elites were beginning to shift their energies and fortunes from grave offerings and temple dedications into the more visible and engaging realm of politics, which seems like a good cue for a brief discussion of another major Greek city, Athens. As early as the late 15th century BC, Athens had been an important Mycenaean Greek power center, with a fortress atop its central acropolis. After falling victim to the Bronze Age collapse, Athens managed to recover much of its wealth and prominence by around 900 BC, making the claim that it had never known Dorian conquest, but instead remained of pure, unconquered Ionian Greek stock. Similar to Corinth, Archaic Athens was first ruled by a line of kings, many of whom came from a local landowning aristocracy known as the Eupatridae, or the well-bred. 
This same group also dominated other local power structures, which included a ruling council and a war leader known as a Polemarchus. Kingly rule was finally abolished in 683 BC, and in its place the Athenians instituted the annual elected office of Archon, or chief magistrate. The succeeding decades were marked by growing Athenian dominance of surrounding territories, along with growing class conflict between powerful elites and common citizens. The first notable incident in Athenian history is the Chylon Conspiracy. Around 630 BC, an Olympic victor and Eupatridae named Chylon, whose father-in-law, Theogenes, was tyrant of the city of Megara, seized the Acropolis of Athens. At the time, the Acropolis was merely the symbolic high point of the city, and possessed none of the monumental buildings it would hold during the later Classical Age. When Chylon's coup failed, the would-be tyrant sought sanctuary in a local temple. The Athenian Archon, a man named Megacles from the powerful Alcmenid clan, lured Chylon and his followers from their refuge with promises of safe passage, then uh, had them stoned to death. Despite being cursed and exiled from the city for this sacrilegious act, the Alcmenid family would continue to play a prominent role in the Athenian power structure for generations to come. The Chylon Conspiracy shines a light on late 7th century BC Athens as the setting of volatile conflict between local family-based elites. This situation led more or less directly to the laws instituted by the Athenian archon Draco, whose harshness is the origin of the term Draconian. Draco's laws, the first written constitution of Athens, highlight some of the major concerns of the period, particularly the danger posed to the community by conflict among its more powerful members. Draco's laws codified debt slavery, instituted the death penalty for even minor offenses, and distinguished between the crimes of murder and involuntary homicide, thereby determining which individuals and families could be exiled from the city. The heavy-handed legal code can probably be viewed as a last-ditch effort to curtail spiraling conflict. But even so, it was a stopgap measure at best. In the coming 6th century BC, Athens, along with the rest of Greece, would continue to struggle with the great questions of the proper role and form of government. In Athens, the search would eventually lead to a novel solution of unprecedented scope and influence, the institution of democracy. Next episode, we'll embark upon the final leg of our long journey as we enter the 6th century BC and start bridging the gap between the archaic and classical worlds. We'll witness the final, brief, and glorious resurgence of Mesopotamia under Chaldean rule as it contends with Media, Egypt, and Lydia over domination of the post-Assyrian Near East. All this next time on The Ancient World.